That's right. Welcome back to another episode of Political Football, our year-ending special for 2023. Uh, and that was a little number by Maloko, the Boris musical mix. Uh, and no doubt Paddy Cummins is blasting that from his Bronte mansion uh, upon return from India earlier this month. Uh, what a World Cup win that was. We'll dissect that a little bit later. Uh, but plenty to get through in this year-ending special. We'll get to our favourite sporting moments of the year. Uh, what's making controversy as we enter the summer of cricket uh, and what will be a big domestic summer, both for myself and my wonderful co-host, Joseph Boyden. Uh, how are you this afternoon, mate? I hope you're going well. Yeah, mate. I'm pretty good. Just checking in from the uh, nation's capital across the country, as broadly uh, known as. Um, yeah, mate, I'm all right. I'm pretty pretty revved up for summer. Um, ready to, you know get horizontal on the stand, um, a lot of sun, uh, a lot of beer, a lot of, you know, a lot of the Christmas spirit, if you will. Um, and yeah, ready to, ready to hook in one last time, mate, this, this year, and, uh, before we, before we uh, get into a, a big old 2024. Very good, and that's what we want to hear. No doubt 2023 has its challenges uh, for, for some of us involved here, but uh, got to say, I'm loving this look that you're rocking here, the the skinhead's Rusty Crow uh, look going on there with the, with, the gold, with the gold chain rocking. I'm much more swag than I am, but I, I am rocking a bit of a salad and a bit of stubble going on here too. So, uh, very liberating, mate. You shave the head. It's very liberating, you know. You free yourself. Um, it's like I feel like a whole new man, you know. Very Especially good. Especially riding summer. Um, very necessary. Very Absolutely. Necessary. And, and with, with my haircut, I've got some positive feedback on that too. People thinking it's a fade, and actually it's just great hairs that have started to come through on the side and being a long-suffering West Tigers fan. Uh, but that's neither here nor there. Let's get into it. Uh, so let's start with the policy side, as we always do. And there's been plenty of stuff making news uh, over the last couple of weeks, and we'll dissect some of the things, perhaps more importantly, uh, some of the things the media doesn't come to their best ability, because let's face it, uh, who's doing journalism these days? You know, they wouldn't know their left foot from their right foot. No, I'm just kidding. But... Um, we're going to look at the government's same job, same pay legislation that passed the Senate this past week uh, with the support of David Pocock and Jackie Lambie. And the key questions for all your average Joes out there, what does that mean for the average punter? Right? And then second of all, we're going to look, look at uh, and reflect back on some of the commentary and the hysteria around immigration. Uh, the media loves hyping that up, but we're going to give some common sense approaches, common sense police um, on that regard. So let's roll into it, and many of you may be asking, what is the government's same job, same pay legislation? Uh, obviously, it was uh, fiercely debated um, to get it through the Senate and its cross-bench support, um, like both governments these days, with the uh, proportional voting system that we have. Um, so a couple of uh, key parts of it. Uh, number one, uh, effectively criminalisation of wage theft. So employees caught deliberately underpaying workers will face uh, increased jail time under new laws, uh, it could include a maximum penalty of 10 years in jail and fines of up to 7.8 million or three times the amount that was underpaid uh, that exceeds a, a maximum fine. Now, for those common sense listeners out there, you might be asking, what does this mean for me? Well, it just means, right, it evens up the ledger, right? As a worker, right, if, you, if you're uh, working in hospitality, you put your hand in the till and you get caught, right, that's a fine, that's a penalty. That might even lead to some jail time for you as well. Or equally the other way, if an employer uh, isn't paying you your correct wage or they're not paying your superannuation, there's a potential there for that to be uh, a criminal offence. So it's just the evening of the ledger there for workers. And let me tell you, Joseph, 
Uh, it's a good day to be a first responder in the country, especially if you're in New South Wales, because as part of this same job, same pay legislation, first responders will have easier access to post-traumatic stress disorder compensation. Um, and let me tell you, imagine what first responders see, car accidents, homicides, and everything in between. Uh, you know, th- there's no doubt that they deserve that. But also, at a state level, um, there was a historic agreement today between uh, the paramedics union uh, and the government to secure a, an average of a 25% pay rise for paramedics over a four, next four-year period. So that's an average of 6.25% a year, which is the biggest deal uh, that's been landed for some time. Uh, and let me tell you, mate, Joe, Joe, mate, do you want to hear a little anecdote? Mate, Tom, I do, I do. I've been hanging out for a couple of anecdotes. Hit me up. Well, let me tell you, because you enjoy this one, not uh, much of my personal expense, but... Uh, in November, I actually uh, landed myself down with a kidney stone. Now, they say a kidney stone is the closest a man comes to actually giving birth. Uh, and let, let me tell you, I wouldn't wish a kidney stone upon, upon my own worst uh, uh, enemy because um, I did get one. Um, I didn't find out, obviously, until I was in the hospital. But one night, um, one Thursday night, I came home from the office, um, had my dinner, had a shower, and then I just got this sharp pain in my left-hand side and then was just compulsively vomiting uh, with pain. Um, so I couldn't go in a taxi or, you know, we couldn't go in the car really because I was vomiting. So um, I was just in so much pain. I was effectively riding on my bed like I was tapping out to an edge, uh, hurt, you know, or Chris Jericho, uh, the walls of Jericho. Um, and uh, the ambulance came and, and i tell you what, the paramedics were, were fantastic. They were extremely calming. Um, they were able to give me some pain relief as much needed and they were just able to respond to the scenario to the utmost, uh, you know, utmost degree. And, and these guys were probably mid to late 20s and uh, you know it's just their full skills at display you know in a more hour of need or uh, you know they were, they were great and they acted as a great conduit to get in the hospital again I'm not a fan of calling an ambulance under any circumstances where I think it's the only last resort uh, but in this case it was and they provided ex- ex- excellent things so good to see some core labour business there going through that's a little anecdote there right uh, a couple of a uh, couple of other things as part of this bill uh, contractors will receive the same pay as full-time employees in the same role. Well, you might be thinking, well, shouldn't that just happen at, 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 at currently? But no, it doesn't happen like that, right? Say a mining company, for example, someone's directly employed by the mining company, someone might be employed through a labour hire company. They might, the like, person through the labour hire company might be getting for 30000 less because of less entitlements, the way they've arranged that to get the fee for that. So that'll even out that loophole, which is very good. And... People say, oh, what about, you know, being have a competitive economy? Joe, would you like to hear another anecdote? Oh, yes. I've been teaching, but it me. Well, I'll roll off another one here for you. So, um, at the front of my place, right, the little, the, the spot where you can park a car, probably big enough for a sedan. If you're a skillful driver, you could probably park a, you know, a RAV4 there. Anyway, I've never really had any issues of anyone parking over the driveway. Sometimes the ute's parked there and it's been a little bit over the driveway, but you can still get the car out. But probably last year or a couple of years, maybe, you know, as restrictions started to reach during the pandemic and the pub reopened at the end of the street, some bloke parked his Toyota Kaluga three quarters of the way across the driveway. Now I needed to go out and go to the shops, right? And I knew he'd be down, there's a good chance he was down at the pub. And it was, and it was a labour hired company car, right? Unbelievable. This is the sort of blokes these people are, right? Really to screw people up left, right and centre. So no, no sympathy for labour hired companies. And anyone from the Business Council of Australia listening to that, mate, I'll easily say that to their face too. So, no issues with that. 
I know. I called the pub and I called the pub, and then next twenty minutes later, the bloke's coming back up, and I just went out the front. and I said, "Mate, this is common sense. Look, look at the way you've parked. You know, I don't care if you park on the street. Just give me enough room to get out of the driveway." He goes, "Oh, sorry, mate. Sorry, mate. Yeah, it won't happen again. Yeah, that's why, mate. On your bike. Uh, anyway, that that's that. That's that. No, I, I cowered in my home. I looked through the window and said, "Please don't bash me. Please don't bash me." <laughs> um, the um, so that one. Um, re- there's some new laws around redundancy. You won't go too much into that around small businesses. Um, and there's also in relation to the uh, the band, the uh, engineered stone, the silicosis, which I think some builders have got from you know having exposure to uh, engineered stone, silica, what it's called. Um, they're they're putting some stronger restrictions around that. Um, so there's some key elements that were also stripped out of the build uh, that are going to be further debated next year. That's minimum standards for gig workers, minimum standards for truck drivers, and a changing of the definition of casual employment to provide a path to permanency, which is obviously very important. That'll be discussed next year. I think there's a Senate inquiry. David Pocock and Jackie Lee will be negotiated that. So the bulk of things went through. A few of the more uh, potentially, you know, uh, impactful stuff is still to be discussed. So that's how politics works, and it was good to see, see you get across the line. Um, now, Joe, you might be asking, what does this mean for the average worker? Is that right? Mate, absolutely. I was just about to tell you off and ask that. <laughs> well, it's good that you asked that because effectively this is a cornerstone of what why people elect the Labor government, right? Because they believe they're stronger on worker rights, you know, stronger on wages growth. Um, and it's a key part of their economic message, right? And over the past two years, our real wages have been going backwards, largely due to, to you know, inflation outstripping wages growth. You know, we've had inflation, you know, peak at, uh, what, 6 7%. It's on its way down now. Um, I think it's 4.9% the latest monthly number. But obviously that's outstripped our wages by a couple of percentage points. And when real wages are going backwards, that means in real terms, living standards are going backwards, right? And obviously um, a key part of that um, is being able to lift wages to get them from a two, which was what under the previous government, to having a three or four in front of them. The latest wage figures were about 4%. Um, I think accounting for you know the, the um, pay rises in aged care and a few other essential industries which we're seeing across the right, both at a state level and a federal level. So um, federally what it means is less loopholes for people to be exploited, which is a good thing despite what some at uh, the business lobbyists will say, especially the Mineral Council of Australia, which, you know, let's face it, you wouldn't trust them as far as you could throw them. I'm sure they're lovely people at, at home, but uh, when they get in the, uh, the business world, they're uh, a bit ferocious. But... Uh, that's that, um, and let me just bring this up here for you, get some stats for you, stats for you, bro. Um, that's a key point about that, um, and there's certainly, you know, a perception that I feel that workers aren't being rewarded fairly for their, their efforts, and this is reflected in the latest Scanlan Institute report, uh, which reflects Australians' social cohesion. They found only 12% of the 7,500 respondents agree strongly that hard work is rewarded. Now often you'll see these slight variations in this, but it's obviously important that people believe that uh, they're getting fairly remunerated for their work. Um, we see what happens when the social contract and the economic contract, socioeconomic contract, if you will, uh, is broken. In you know, places like the US where um, you know people who are being left behind look for uh, extremities uh, to support, not necessarily to improve the system, but maybe hopefully make it, see, see if the system will break and things will improve. Um, so it's very important that measures like this getting implemented um, and things like that at a um, federal level when it comes to w- worker safety in a workplace, getting stronger rights around 
uh, wage criminalisation where it occurs um, and so forth. Actually, and, and you know, contractors being able to get paid for doing the exact same job as um, as full time employees do. Um, these are very important things alongside state level negotiations with essential workers, which you've seen over the last week. Joseph, mate, any questions on that? No, mate, absolutely not. I think you're nailing it. Um, and you're actually bringing me back up to speed on what I've missed since I've been away. So, um, very informative stuff. I'm, I'm basically, you know, an audience member right now. Well, very good, very good. Um, you know, I love to stand on my soapbox and uh, inform us topics that I'm passionate about, and that's what we do here at Political Football um, on this uh, much vaunted podcast that's that's, uh, that tops the uh, both the Spotify and the Apple list. Um, <laughs> Number one in Australia this year, I believe. Just past uh, Blake and Abba. Um So yeah, that, that's that's the first topic. The other topic I wanted to talk about um, is a little thing called immigration. Now. Uh, I believe uh, you would have had some uh, dealings with immigration issue, perhaps only in Australia, but uh, in other parts of the world. But uh, we won't digest here. But I'm just saying, you know, it's a it's a fluid thing. The list is fluid in the words of Stephen A. Smith. It's fluid. That's it, mate. We will leave. Yeah, we'll leave my immigration for another day. So there was a recent High Court decision that found, and again, without being a lawyer, I don't know the exact words of which they. You know, they, I think they found that holding people indefinitely in detention is unconstitutional. I believe was the term. Um, which is just common sense, right? Um, and this applied to a group of, I think, about a hundred odd um, asylum seekers who have been held in detention for an X period of time. Uh, but some of those people, so that effectively it meant overnight that they had to be released uh, into the community because obviously it was a violation. A, a small number of them, I think maybe six to ten, um, had previously been tried for serious criminal convictions in other parts of the, in other parts of the world. Um, and so the common sense approach would be that, of course, you know, every person, you know, has a right. They don't, shouldn't be held in detention, right? That, that, that's a strong belief, right? You know, you seek asylum in another country, you know, you have a process, you have a due process to it, to see that through. Um, the common sense approach would be to say, well, we can release the people that have no criminal record, but the people who have criminal record, there should be stronger protections in place to ensure that they're not a potential harm to the community. Um, that should have been the approach. Again, I'm not sure whether the High Court could have actually done that, but that's what should have prevailed, right? I'm talking about this is what the legal system is enabled. You know, it's one arm of the you know, separation of powers, and then this is what it should have actually occurred. But it became a bit of a political firestorm because we know the Coalition loved to jump on anything, immigration, Tampa, stop the boats, all that sort of rubbish, um, even though there was 110,000 asylum seekers that came out of the last decade. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, but that's that. So... Um, for the government, oh, I think it's important they get on top of this to ensure that doesn't have a path to victory. Um, obviously, it's got my Labor hat on here, but um, obviously that wouldn't be a suitable outcome for me or Australia at large. Um, so, you know, this is what sort of like Tony Abbott had this political strategy where he was just going to hammer the boats and, you know, hammer the debt and deficit thing, and it worked for him. You know, there, there is a path to victory where this could become a similar issue, especially the way the media loves it you know, uh, put, a, put a lie on this even if they do make some ridiculous assertions. But as part of that, the government has released a new migration strategy, which will see numbers halved by 2025, which I think was just common sense that for them policy-wise, like uh, to catch up with all the infrastructure that we're already in housing shortage uh, was very important. Uh, and this year we had a record number. Um, I think 510,000 today is how many people have come in, which is double, effectively double what was pre-pandemic. Yeah. Obviously, there's going to be some catch-up on the pandemic. Right? We had two years of 
no migration effectively. So there was a whole point of that. But um, the university sector um, has certainly been a key part of that. Um, so, um, you know, with international students coming in in large numbers. So there's going to be a crackdown on tertiary education pathways, focusing on sort of making sure that people aren't using uh, student visas to come in here and actually access work and not study. Um, so, you know, quasi-colleges just using them as a sort of guise to get into the workforce. Um, and then also focusing on high school workers, so those earning over 100,000, I think, or 135,000. You know, there's areas of critical shortage. So they come in, you know, they've got enough money to support themselves. They um, go straight into a high-paid high job where, you know, they're active members of the community, you know, pay X amount of tax and so forth. So they're the key makings of that. I just want to make, just wanted to say that. I'm not sure we've got any reflections on that. I know people think immigration is a controversial topic, but hey, differences is what makes us great, and this is what it's all about: explaining that and trying to, in the in the everyman in the everyman sense. But uh, I feel like I've been talking enough now, Joe. Do you got? Uh, do you got? Um, geez, I'm speaking well. Do you got any reflections on that? Uh, no, honestly, the statistics are all. You know, I'm hearing them from your mouth first. I've obviously been concerning my mindset with a. Um, a couple of other countries this year. I've only been back in Indonesia for well, four, or so, four or so weeks. So, you know, I've, I've, have, I've kind of had my head in the sand politically, Tom, so um, this has been very educational for myself. But, um, yeah, I guess hearing more about it, um, immigration issues is always something that's going to pop up, I guess, around an election, um, from what I know, from my very limited basic knowledge. Um, but yeah, I'm, I guess you know. What do you do? I'm, I'm one of the I'm one of the buggers who got turned away. So <laughs> uh, you know, how do you, how do you feel about? It? I think I guess my reflection on you know the detainees. Um, it's a really hard one. I think you know you have to be able to see it from both sides. I think marrying yourself to one side of that um, is a bit sort of ignorant. You know, you've got to you got to sort of understand both both sides of the coin, um, people's concerns with not wanting people with criminal records out and about. Um, but at the end of the day, people with criminal records in our own country get around still. So, you know, I feel like that those issues need to be gone over with a fine-tooth comb um, and they're sort of not really one-size-fits-all issues. But, um, yeah, I guess we've got to have faith that they'll be looked after properly and, and that all will be good and that the best intentions are sought after. Very good, very good. And again, profound words of wisdom from a philosophical point of view and we expect nothing less from the big boys though, down there in the nation's capital. Uh, just from a, again, speaking on the philosophical point of view, I think it's important that we think about migration as something that's benefited our country large to a large degree. Um, certainly the benefits, I think, have outweighed their the negatives. I mean, you know, you've got to look at Australia as, as a great place to live and, and people want to live here and that's been part of our economic story you know, post World War Two, where we were, you know, if it was effectively populate or perish, um, getting rid of. I mean, we had the White Australia policy up to nineteen seventy two, before the Whitlam government government abolished that, which cleared the way for, you know, not only you know, uh, continental Europeans and and uh, the British to come and Irish to come here, but uh, also um, from Asia, you know, um, Southern Asia and and other parts of the world. So, um, you know, you look at. Uh, you know the, uh, the the lifestyle that we live, in, and I'm sure you know we, we know Brazilian people, we know people from China, Indonesia, um, India, 
mid the Middle East, you know, this all parts of the world that live in Australia, and uh, I think all those cultures enrich us. Um, it's made, and, and I think largely probably better than any other country we've within a generation. You know, I think probably when that, you know, especially that sort of post-war migration uh, in the seventies, migration from Vietnam and, and Lebanon and so forth. Within one generation, you know, they've gone from being sort of poor, you know, and, and sort of working class to being able to have all these uh, wonderful economic opportunities, which in other parts of the world, um, I, I don't think you see that, and that leads to the breakdown and cohesion. That's not to say that we take that for granted and that it will always be the case. I think there's certainly some cases for that where you see it with, um, you know, temporary workers getting exploited in the gig economy um, or on farms or, for example, you know, people not doing the right thing when it comes to that. But um, largely, um, there is plenty of economic opportunity here, and that's why people want to come here and we want to make sure that we continue to have that. we just got to have it at a sustainable level so when they, people do come and the community at large can support that. And I think Claire O'Neill, the Home Affairs Minister, made that point during the week. Australia's immigration program has been really successful because largely it has received the, the support of the community. Uh, but if that program became too large and people felt that their pressures were being... Ta- yeah, so pressures were sort of in relation to accessing housing and services and infrastructure and all the sort of things that we appreciate as civilians... You know, maybe that would come under threat. So I think managing that is really important. Um, and uh, I'm glad that you made that point because um, you made me think of that. So that was some profound sure. political football right there. Look, if you have any questions about immigration, just next Saturday night when you're heading home at three in the morning and you stop past your kebab shop or your agalo or your, <laughs> you know, Indian home diner out east or whatever it's called, just remember, wouldn't be there without it, all right? <laughs> Um, anyway, we'll leave the, uh, the policy stuff there. I hope you've really enjoyed uh, listening to that. Uh, I think those are two really important discussions that we've had. And, um, yeah, that's some uh, food for thought for uh, your Christmas shopping when you're listening to this podcast. So uh, we'll stop it there and we'll be back shortly with some much vaunted sport. We know our loved, loved community loves us talking a bit of tippy-tap, a bit of sport, a bit of cricket crack. Um, so uh, we'll uh, get into that now. Well, there you have it. That was the final seconds of commentary in the Glenn Maxwell 200 and one not or red ink, as the boys in the great cricketer would say, two hundred and one red um, against Afghanistan when everything um, had seemed like Australia would lose that game at seven for ninety one, chasing two ninety two. But Glenn Maxwell put on one of the greatest displays, uh, and that was on the path uh, to a wonderful World Cup victory, an unlikely World Cup victory, um, but Australia dragged the World Cup um, from the home nation. Uh, in front of 100,000 Indians. Um, it was one of the victories for the ages. I stayed up the whole night, and I'll tell you what, um, everyone knows that obviously cricket was one of my major sports growing up, being the young cross-code athlete that I was. Uh, but um, so I try not to laugh when I say that. Um, but there, what a World Cup win. And I'll tell you what, um, we'll touch on the World Cup win a little bit later in our moments of the year, but uh, it's set up for a wonderful... Uh, domestic summer, Australia welcoming Pakistan and the West Indies, and I believe is what they call in unofficial cricket lingo a cash-in summer. This is fill your boots stuff. Uh, Joseph, what are you looking forward to 
as you close your window there, mate. Yeah, that's right. Get the aircon on, whack it on. It's a bit warm down there in the nation's capital of Lockheed this year in Sydney. What are you looking Sorry, forward to? I'm just seeing a couple of clouds rolling in. Oh, that's right, yeah. Mate, we don't want you getting struck by lightning as you sit by the window on the podcast, mate, because we wish... Oh, absolutely not. I'm not sure if you can see out the camera there, but she's got to be dark in the last five or ten, as I wasn't looking. But, um, oh, yeah. That's all right, mate. That's what we do here. We manage. We manage. Uh, we put out spot fires. And, but anyway, back to the task at hand. My well, thoughts on the summer, yeah, definitely. Fill your pockets. I think it is very, very, very important that our big time um see some success this summer, um, especially just going forward into future campaigns. I think those those big top water guys, especially, you know, your Smiths, um, who didn't score a ton of runs over in England. Um, obviously it's tough to score away from home consistently, but um, I think it's very important. If we expect to dominate both Pakistan and the West Indies this summer, um, I think we have to hold a very high expectation on our best players to perform and not let people escape um, with the bare minimum, even if we're winning games. I think we still need to hold a very high expectation on our big guns. But I also think it's super, super important for us to sort of bleed in some youth where we can, you know, if we, we go up one or two nil against Pakistan early, I'd love to see some new blood come in. Um, you know, you hear a lot about some Lance, Morris, uh, Lance Morris's um, even some younger batsmen, uh, Matty Renshaw, you know, there's arguments for him when to replace Warner and etc. But just sort of finding chances to sort of lead some young guys in. We've got a lot of older guys coming sort of to the end of their careers. And I think in the form that we're in and the position that we're in in world cricket right now, we'd love to stay on, on top and not have to take a backward step to get back to being the best. Um, I think we've got you know, a lot of years of success and dominance ahead of us, but if we can't bleed our youth in, sort of blend them in um, efficiently, I think that'll be where we lose this summer of cricket. Absolutely, and I think that is a very good and well-digested point there because a lot of these guys are reaching closer to the end than the beginning. Um, you think of your Steve Smiths, you think of your, obviously David Warner, who's uh, going to pull the plug after the Sydney test. Um, Usman is, is the same age as Davey so he's probably only got maybe one or two summers left and then the bowling attack you know they're on the north side of 30 now obviously Paddy Cummins will be captain for a few years yet to come but um, you know you got to think about what's going on there and, and Gary um, you know while spin bowling isn't perhaps as taxing as some of the other obligations in the team and he sees himself going to another uh, English tour um, you know you've got to start thinking about that and how you integrate it and then um, you know, the Marsh v Green sort of thing. You know, Green probably deserves to be in the team. You know, he's probably in your best um, 11 players. So how do you negotiate that? Um, there's been talks of him potentially opening the batting um, and having Marsh and Green in the team, um, especially once Warner leaves. But, um, you know, I think Australian selections are pretty conservatively historically. They'll probably just go for a like-for-like replacement. I'd say Bancroft is probably the number one if you wanted to go for an opener, given he's averaging 50 over the last couple of summers and Renshaw's just been averaging low 30s, um, even though he did hit 100 in the Australia, um, the Prime Minister 11 game. Uh, that was a bit of a road there in Canberra. Um, so, yeah, I think um, yeah, there's some th- things there to think about, how you integrate there and how you transition from, you know, being a great team and one of the great teams of the modern generation to making sure that it has sustained success. We hear a lot about in the sporting world, sustained 
success um, these these days. So uh, um, I think the Sydney Swans do it pretty well. A few other clubs probably shooting around. They do it pretty well, but uh, that's that. But let's get to anything, something that we actually, um, it's a bit more controversial here. So Mitchell Johnson firing off bullets at David Warner uh, in an op-ed piece in the Western Australian. Um, and it really is, goes to it's cricket. It's not about how many runs you score or how many wickets you take. It's like, what's he like as a bloke? And, and uh, that really is what's uh, going on here. Uh, Mitchell Johnson clearly said that uh, he just doesn't like Davey. Uh, and you've got to separate your acquaintances in the Australian cricket team from your actual real mates. Again, some New South Wales v Queensland WA energy going on here uh, to split the states up. A bit of colonialism there. But, um, yeah, what are your thoughts on this? Mitchie Johnson, Davey Warner. A lot of people aren't fans of Davey Warner, but have said that uh, he was blindsided here. Uh, other people have said Johnson's entitled to his opinion. He probably is and deserves so, but uh, maybe he shouldn't have gone so personal in his attack. Um, yeah, what are your thoughts? Yeah, look, I think, you know, what he says is up to him and he's allowed to have his personal opinion. But I think right now Mitchell Johnson's winning, winning this whole scenario just because of the, the sort of taste everyone still has in their mouth for David Warner over his, you know, actions for the past few years. But I don't think this will age well for Mitchell Johnson at all and I think he'll end up coming out of this worse off than Warner. I think what will happen is that we will... He'll go into the test in Sydney as his last test. He'll do what we've all been talking about, and that will overshadow Mitchell Johnson's comments. And then Mitchell Johnson's going to have to be left to just know that he put that out there. And regardless of you know the sort of media bites he got at the time, we all moved on. But those words still came out of his mouth that he's got to live with. Um, I don't really care for what he said. I think David Warner's been a massive part of Australian cricket for so long and you know maybe it is a tiny bit arrogant that he wants this big home send off but if we look at any um, sort of global sport you know we talk about foot, like soccer, football talk about basketball in the NBA, NFL you've got big all time greats who do this sort of shit, they have like one last go round um, and you know they make a big deal of their last game or their last home game they've you know, get T-shirts made, have a farewell ceremony. Like, this, it's not a big thing in Australian sport, and, you know, I don't see the problem with it. He's been a huge part of our success. Um, he'll go down as one of our best batsmen, opening batsmen of all time. Um, the least we can do is, you know, help just celebrate with him. Because whether we celebrate it as fans or not, he still will be, and his teammates are going to celebrate with him because they're his mates. So you either jump on board or you just don't and you stay out of it. But, um, yeah, I have no problem with a big send-off in Sydney. I think it'll just add to add to the narrative a little bit and make things more exciting, personally. For sure. Very good take. Very good take. And I think there's been a bit of your overreaction to sort of Warner's words when he actually said that... Um, you know, if he did make it to Sydney, that that'd be his ideal place to 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 pull the pin on his Test career. It, it was more the sense that it wasn't go. Oh, I'm, you know, I'm going to try and guarantee my spot for the next six seven months uh, by calling it early and saying I'm going to retire. So that you know they're going to have to stick with me. You know, it's because you're not going to drop money of your greats. But because he's a bit out of form, um, it was more saying it was just saying yeah. If I, well, if I make it and I'm still selected in the team in Sydney, um, then that that'll be ideally my my final Test. Um, there was no big, bold assumptions. Oh, you know, Sydney's going to be my final test and I've got to be guaranteed for the rest of the team. So 
without the media taking that a bit out of context for for a story, um, and, and put it on there too. So um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I think you could point to Warner's numbers over the last couple of you know, and if you could slice and dice it, and you could say that he's probably you know out of form. But you know, there's no massive case to say someone's banging down the door to come in and replace him, especially with what he's put on the board. I mean, I know it's a different format, but we don't win the World Cup without Warner. Um, you know, he was the leading run scorer in the team and one of the top run scorers in the competition, a couple of big hundreds uh, in the hour of need. Uh, so, yeah, I think it, I think it's much to do about nothing. You know, provides the, the media types and the uh, the clickbait or something to talk about. But, uh, yeah, boys, let's move on and let's uh, sort it out on the pitch. Hey, Mitch, you, can you still buy 140? I'm going to tonk you over mid-wicket, mate. Bit of I that going on. Yeah. After the Sydney test. You know, they should have one of the lunch breaks on, like, day one or two. <laughs> just have, like, Mitch in the net bowling a couple of overs. David yeah. right. just comes straight from the field. He's 100 not out and then straight into the nets. Oh, yeah, mate, I'm seeing my beach balls today, mate. Good luck. Um, and then he just beams him. Uh, <laughs> the uh, So we'll leave that there. Again, the, the test match starts tomorrow. The... The West Test, I believe, is what they're going for. They're a rare breed over there in WA. Still crying, uh, you know, over uh, spilt milk there with Justin Langer. Uh, move on, I, I say. But um, uh, let's get to our reflections on the year. And, and it's been quite a uh, remarkable sporting year for, for Australia and, and various ath- Australian athletes. Uh, some top sporting moments, obviously, including the, the, the Cricket World Cup win, uh, Ariane Titman's world record in the 400 metres freestyle against the the uh, the giants of uh, Ledecky and Summer McIntosh, the young star from Canada, uh, Cleary, the Ice Man, uh, in the uh, NRL Grand Final, bringing back Penrith from the brink and delivering a three-peat, like we talked on our Grand Final review, uh, and of course uh, the Matildas World Cup run to the to the semi final and get finishing in the top four spot, uh, the best World Cup result for uh, uh, in football or soccer for those who uh, call it soccer still. Um, in Australian history, both men or female, both men or women. So, um, there, there's some top ones there, but um, maybe just want to roll off your couple of sporting moments that you uh, that you have at the top of your list for 2023, and and perhaps a, a little reason why. Yeah, mate. So obviously the NRL Grand Final pops it for me. I still think I still hold true that that's the best Grand Final I've ever watched, and I was watching that from overseas at like five in the morning, and um, you know. That had me up about all day. Um, next was, um, you know, I'm going to say the Ashes. I know, I know, it was a bit disappointing. We didn't win that series, but I was actually in um, in London for what was it, the fifth Test, with our chance to close it out um, at the Oval. I went to day, or did I go to day one, um, and yeah, bucket list, bucket list sort of thing to do. Um, and Ashes tested the over. Absolutely incredible. So I'm very biased in that regard. Um, but just, I think, even though we only drew that series, I think was such a massive thing, you know, for, for Australian cricket. Um, you know, a lot of people get caught up on, oh, we had a 2 0 lead, like, we needed to win that series. Like, it doesn't, like, to me, that doesn't matter at all. Like, we didn't lose. Um, and when you can go away in international test cricket against like one of the best historic countries and not lose I think that in itself is a win um, so that makes my list uh, the ODI World Cup was just 
incredible. I remember losing our first two games, and I watched the majority of the World Cup with the family I was staying with in England. And we lost our first two games, and I said to them, we're winning it. We're 100% winning it. And they looked at me like I was an idiot. We just lost to India and South Africa. Um, and they looked at me like I was an absolute buffoon. And then sure enough, we just rolled through, picked up some form, took down some big teams, and then got the job done in the end, which is awesome. Uh, road one, the London Broncos. Um, so when I went to, when I went to London, I was, I was missing my rugby league, spending a lot of time in New York, um, and just mentioned I wanted to go to a rugby league game. The, ne- the next best thing was the London Broncos, who were in the championship, which is the division below the Super League. Um, and now a middle middle of the table, and we went and watched them in a game. I forget who they were versing now, but they actually ended up losing late, and we were a bit disappointed. But then we went on a huge run for the rest of the season and ended up winning the comp and uh, getting promoted into the Super League. So shout out to the London Broncos, Corey Norman leading the way, ex Caraboy. Bumped into him uh, a few days after the game at sixes, the batting cages. Don't, get me, um, sta- don't get me started, mate. Shouted him a beer, had a yarn. Uh, yeah, it was actually so weird. We bumped into him in a town um, pretty far away from where we actually watched the game. So that was pretty, pretty odd. Uh, and then the last one, for me at least, off the top of my, off the top of my head and my list, uh, just, you know, you know I love my, my Yankee sports, my basketball, my NFL. Just want to say this season's NFL has been probably one of the best seasons I've watched. Um, competitiveness and sort of there's a lot of horses in the race right now which is not really what you see in the NFL a lot of the time usually it's a two-off race but yeah really incredible been loving it also got to watch a lot of that sort of live on TV in America which was pretty riveting to me um, and yeah that's that's my list disappointed I couldn't put the boomers on my list with a with a World Cup win this year we actually flopped out pretty early and that was that was very very disappointing, but the Olympics is next year, and I think we'll be in with a red-off chance. So hopefully that'll be on my list for twenty twenty-four. Yeah, fantastic list, and, and maybe just keep that in mind for your for your bold predictions for twenty twenty-four, especially including one eye towards Paris. But um, yeah, that that's a great list. Um, I, I would certainly have some of those high on my list. Clearly, the Iceman obviously would feature on there. Uh, but uh, number one, and in terms of the cricket, you know, obviously there's, there was three big wins this year: the World Test Championship, defeating India um, at the Oval um, before the Ashes, then the Ashes, you know, reclaiming the Ashes even though they didn't win. Um, yeah, that, that doesn't feature on my list just because that was a very personally, uh, you know, tough time for me because I was over there as well as in Manchester, you know, and I was supposed to be at the Oval and uh, at Sixers Cricket as well, but um, obviously I had to come home uh, because. Uh, of illness, uh, which was very disappointing from my trip. But uh, in the words of Kelly Clarkson, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Uh, <laughs> um, but that's that. And so I'm going to go with the World Cup win. It is remarkable. And I don't think we've truly appreciated back here just how big of a victory this was. Uh, after being 0-2 and the people at Sky After Dark um, an Indian American and a pommy calling for Paddy Cummins to shut up about climate change and try and lead the woke Australian cricket team with all their rubbish that they go on with. They're saying sport and politics shouldn't match. Yeah, good one, mate. Um, yeah, the uh, they went on a, and won nine in a row, uh, including 
semi-final and final against the two teams they lost to. So they beat every team in the competition, including uh, what was an imperious Indian team that did not look troubled throughout the entire tournament. They won 10 games in a row. Uh, the final in Amanabad in front of uh, Prime Minister Modi and 100,000 Indians was all set up for them. They even tried to doctor the pitch. And what did Paddy come and say? We'll have a bowl, thanks, mate. We'll have a bowl. Are you kidding me? I'm at home going, what are you doing, mate? You need runs on the board. You know, traditional things, nine times out of ten, you think about your bat first, ten times you think about bowling, and your bat. And, and he... But also, if you, I watched I watched a ridiculous amount of World, World Cup games this year, and it was the biggest bat first World Cup I've ever watched in my life. Insane. Insane. Absolutely, but the the Paddy Cummins said no. He said no. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna follow tradition. I'm not gonna follow what the old guys, what the former cricketers are telling me that I should do runs on the board. I'm gonna look at what the World Cups have done in the past. I'm gonna look at the conditions the night before and see that there's dew and that might make it for easier for batting at night because the board's coming on and it makes it slippery for the bowlers. And guess what? He stuck to his guns and he rolled in the air for two forty. And then Travis Jobber head comes out and absolutely wrestles the Indians. And before you know it, they're chasing it three down after C. Smith gets them to three for 47. Manus, the most unlikeliest of guys, comes in who was supposed to be not in the team. He wasn't in the team before the World Cup the games against India. But he scored a couple of hundreds and then all of a sudden he was in the team. Because you know what? The Lord's wings flies on his bats. He's a very Christian man, Manus, and it was shown. He's a man of faith and conviction. And, and and just what a team. Paddy Cummins, what a guy. What a guy this guy is. And he just, he, he you know, sometimes he got smashed a bit in the ashes. But when it, when it counts, when it really counts, he shows up. He shows up. He silenced 100,000 people, got rid of Virat Kohli. And he lifted the World Cup in front of all those Indian fans and said, welcome. You know, this might be the Asian century that we're living in, but we're not there yet. This is still Australia's domain. Right, and this is six... World Cups, baby. Six. Three times more than anybody else in the world. Right, and England shouldn't have counted because they really should have lost in 2019 to New Zealand. But we won't go there. Uh, what what a World Cup win. Did you see the presentation? I did, I did. Oh, oh mate. That, I've never been so uncomfortable. All of the sort of Indian press, I guess, and the uh, TV people and even, you know, the, the BCCI members or whatever, like whoever, anyone who is Indian on that stage was the most uncomfortable person to watch and it was they just hated it. I've never felt that cringy watching something on TV, especially since it was sport before in my life. It was, it was incredible to watch just because it was so uncomfortable knowing that we caused that pain. That's right. Um, and their cringe was my delight and that's all it's all about in the day. Oh, we, we went to World Cup today, did you boys? It was like, and it was the way Australia tuned into it, you know, like, even, you know, the uh, some of the Indian and Pakistani fans would say, I cannot believe Paddy Cummins came home with the World Cup and there's one person with a camera at the airport no one else there to greet him. You know, you know, where the, you know, the, the, it'd be bedlam uh, in those parts of the world but that, that's what it's understated. The thing about cricket is the, the less you care, the better you go. Because I've cared too much and I've gone like a busted ass my whole life at the game. Because I care too much, the head noise is just too much, right? You know, one little mistake will get you out rather than just focusing on the positive. Right, and that's what Paddy Cummins does with his team. He's people say he's just a man manager. No. He's a great strategist you know, he's a great strategist as well. Uh, and what a World Cup win that was. That will go down in the annals, or as they say in twenty two Jump Street, the annals of history. Uh 
So that that was that. So that's my number one moment. And then um, I was debating between Cleary the Iceman and Ariane Tipman's world record in the 400 metre freestyle. Now, most people go Cleary the Iceman, and I feel like we've, we've given that enough credence, but we've got to talk about Arnie. She is a killer. She is a straight out stone cold assassin, man. She just lights out ever since she rose to the world stage. Every opportunity where she potentially knocked down, she rises to the occasion. Now, I don't have that killer instinct in me. That's why I'm sitting in here making a podcast. And she's out there destroying world record with those incredible Latinas Dorsies that she's got that make her float in the water. Right, unbelievable stuff. And she broke the world record. She went sub 356, the first woman in history to do so after Summer McIntosh broke her world record early in the year, the young Canadian gun, and still beat Ledecky. Wow, just wow. And then you've got the emergence, well, we just talked about Arnie there for a second, with the emergence of... Uh, Oh God, I've had a blink for the moment, but uh, the young 200-metre freestyler, 100-metre freestyler, uh, oh, what's her name? Oh, gosh, I've probably forgotten her name for a second, but I've honestly had a blink there. But uh, she's, she is incredible too, and she's going to be a force to be reckoned with. She broke the 200-metre freestyle world record and then the 100-metre freestyle um, in, uh, in, in the World Championships as well. Um, so that, that's my, my top three, um, and obviously a special mention to King Cole, but I'll save that just for a little bit later because it could be something special brewing in 2024 from the King. Um, but you know what? We're going to bring back uh, an old segment of the podcast called Beef of the Week. Now, this probably isn't Beef of the Week. It's probably, you could probably say Beef of the Year from a sporting context. Joseph, do you want to hear more Beef of the Week or the Beef of the Year, mate? Mate, I absolutely do. I love Beef and I want to hear it. Now, one of the other great sporting achievements of 2023 was Matilda's World Cup run at home to make the semi-final, beating France in that you know fantastic uh, quarter-final in the, one of the biggest, longest penalty shootouts in the history of the game. And it, it deserves to be recognised. It was a great sporting achievement. Um, but coming forth, in what other sport do we accept that as something permissible? Right? And they've been a great team for a long period of time now. Anyone who actually follows them know that those are the last Olympics that came forth as well. So this result should have almost been expected. Now, the World Cup is obviously a bigger event than the Olympics. More teams and more stuff, more stuff can go wrong. But this team has been knocking on the door for a while now. They've got one of the world's best players in Sam Kerr, Caitlin Ford, Ford, Mary Fowler. These guys are gun players. They play at the top, you know, you know, whereas the men's team might have one or two players in the EPL or top European leagues. That this Matildas is littered throughout, and that's the credit to the pathway system and, and the the participation in the sport in the country. But the the overhype and and the talk over the public holiday if they won now obviously that didn't come to fruition. Just settle down, okay, right? It's the Matildas are a great team, but to say that they're our national team and they've somehow overtaken the men's cricket team or the women's cricket team or a variety of other teams that have won world championships this year, including the netballers, it's just ridiculous, right? I understand that football is, is, you know, there's much more participants in football than some of these sport, sports, but are you kidding? Like, you, you are literally, you, you have to win the World Cup or at least make the final for, for me to give that sort of credence, right, to be in the top echelon. Um, and I hope the Matildas go well and I hope they win the, the gold in Paris. But, you know, there's been so much hype about it and if they keep congratulating themselves for finishing fourth, guess where they're going to finish? Fourth. So that's, yeah, that's mate, my beef for the week. I'm going to step in here and I'm going to disagree with you a little bit. I Please. Think, I think sport, to me, I, I am a very much win-at-all-cost person with sport, for sure. But I think to look past the wins for, like, not just sport in Australia, for, for women in general, 
but for the future generation of women, that itself, yeah, fourth on on the podium, like whatever, like yeah, that's that's not a win, that's not a gold medal, that's not the first place where everyone wants to be. But the win that's actually had for the future potential success in our country, I've never seen Australia unite like that. Said almost anything in my life, like you know, if you've got. Australia in a men's final in any sport, you know, you're gen, genuinely, generally going to have every man sport fan and a lot of women sport fans interested, but I've never seen non-sport fans of both gender so enthralled in something in my life and so united and so on the same page ever, I don't think, and consistently throughout the whole World Cup. I woke up for every game. I was, you know, I was in New York and I was watching every game and I couldn't believe some of the people I was seeing post about it on their Instagram who have never given two raps about any sport game in their life. I think that in itself is a huge win. And I've got a young cousin of mine who's uh, a bit like a girl cousin who is a young up-and-coming uh, soccer player who's, who's really good. And I was just imagining seeing it through her perspective and I could imagine how powerful that would be. So, yes, I don't... Yes, I agree, maybe not the national team, but... I don't think, I think Australia is just too overall good at sport to have a national team. You know what I mean? I don't think any team in Australia should hold that title or that position or that regard. Um, I think we should, should just see, it, see and appreciate it for what it is and what it can be and what it's going to do for the future. And I think that sport definitely will turn into a first. I 100% think it for the next you know, one or two World Cups time. Cool. There's always a voice of reason, and I have no issue with young girls or young boys being inspired by the Matildas. I hope that's the case, despite you know football being one of the worst sports. Of course, you can't use your hands, um, but uh, that's neither here nor there. I, I just think that the, the, the cavalcade of things when when the media get on something, you know, and it's, I feel like it's it worse in the social media age. They just drive it into into the ground, and and I, I get that. You know, people who have been long time supporters of it posting on their socials, whatever you know. Anyone you know as me, you know, every time Tigers get a win, I post on my social. So it doesn't happen very often, but it uh, occasionally happens. Um, the but yeah, but it's people you know who have got wouldn't know their left foot from their right foot when it comes to soccer. If you're part on the pun and they're posting like they're part of the victory, no mate, just sit at home and give it a clap, right? Um, anyway, that that's just my. It's just about putting things in perspective and understanding that uh, you know it was great and it was successful and it was a wonderful World Cup, but you still finished fourth. Um, and that's just the, the reality of the situation. Um, so anyway, let's let's leave that there. Uh, let's move on to our final topic uh, for the podcast, our year-ending podcast for 2023. And that is looking forward, casting the eye forward to 2024. It's your bold predictions. Uh, you might want to include something about your league or AFL here. Or you could potentially include something about the Paris Olympics, uh, which hopefully I'll be attending in some form or another um, in 2024. W- what do you think? Give me your bold prediction. Give me predictions. Whatever you. What do you think is going to occur? Have free will here, Joseph. Um. You know, I've I've, I've sat here on this on this podcast many a time and um, given myself some false hope and, and maybe you know forced some, some positive energy about my mighty Parramatta Eels. But this year will be different. Tom, this year will be much different. We will be back. We will be back in a grand final. Look, I don't want to say we're going to win it because I'm just going to say we're going to be back in the grand final next year. 
Last year, this year, sorry, we had the hardest runner in the comp. We never had our full strength team on the field at one time. We were always injured. We went and picked up off the, off the Hangawi, but then, you know, he faced a couple of injuries and then didn't even get to get on the park much with RCG. Then, you know, Moses goes down at the end of the year when we were in some crucial games. Um, we just never had, we never had the boys on the park and we were still, you know, we were still looking like a good final shot um, for much of the season. And we pulled off some pretty, pretty big wins against some pretty big teams um, last this year. And I think next year, if we can get healthy, I, I think we're a massive sleeper for the comp, mate. And I, I mean that. Wholeheartedly, I mean that. Um, and then also, Boomer's medal again this Olympics. We've got third place. We've got our first basketball men's uh, medal in Tokyo Olympics. We came third. We beat Slovenia in the bronze medal match. I think we can go one better. We've just seen Germany win the World Cup, um, and it was a non-American grand final. Both Canada and the US played in, in the bronze medal match against each other. Um, so Germany has, has sort of shown the way, shown the way forward, shown that you can do it, you can beat those giants. Um, and I think we are the next best team after the US and Canada. Uh, we just, you know, we couldn't get a thing to go. Um, in the World Cup this year, but, but you know, as Aussies do, we stand up, we stand up in the big time, mate, especially in the community stage. And I see, I see a lot of success coming our way, especially because we've got a lot more interest from some of our marquee players uh, this time around. So I think we might see our strongest outfit yet, even stronger than the World Cup this year, which was probably our best team on paper to date. Um, so. Yeah, very, very high hopes, very high expectations, and I think we can go one better than, at least one better than Bronx this year. Yeah, just don't let Josh Giddy near the skateboarders. Well, are we getting into that? No, 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 no. That, that was just me trying to add some bit of better humour to the podcast. Yeah, you know that our podcast listeners love. Um, that's some good stuff there, and I love the commitment to Parramatta Eels. I would love to make the same fearless prediction about the the mighty West Tigers, but uh, maybe just start with the top eight uh, before we uh, think about premierships. But uh, I'll, I'll I'll won't mention the Tigers, and I'm going to cast an eye forward to Paris. Uh, and everybody who knows me knows that I love the blue ribbon. Uh, events, or the Blue Raband events, as some people say, <laughs> and that is the 100-metre freestyle. You are kidding me. This is the big boys. This is the big boys in action. If you're not six foot three plus, mate, I don't want to hear about it, mate. You're in there. You're in there with the big dogs, the chest-slapping dogs, right? And that's what Cole Chalmers is. He's, he's an absolute dog, right? He calls himself the Great White Shark, right? That's because he is. This guy's record is phenomenal. An Olympic gold, an Olympic silver medal, a world championship, a Pampax title, a Commonwealth Games gold deluxe, uh, world championship relays. This guy lives for the relay. I've seen him in, in unwinnable positions, jumping in often third or fourth in the last leg, and this guy jumps out of the water and delivers a gold for Australia. And that's what I'm all about because the swim team, Australia swim team. You talk about you know the the uh, cricket team, women's cricket team, the uh, the Dolphins, the uh, sorry the Matildas, um, and the Netballers, the Diamonds. The, the the Australian swim team is up there as a claim for having one of, one of the Australia's best teams because they are just so elite at the moment and there is just yeah that's who I was thinking of before Molly O'Callaghan was the 100 metre freestyle 200 metre freestyle champion I knew it would come to me um, but Kyle Chalmers up against potentially Caleb Dressel who has had injury but I think he's going to produce his best for 2024 he often comes out of the out of the woodworks for the Olympics 
up against uh, the young Chinese bloke who they opened up the doors for there at the Asian Games and he had a sub for, I think he had a sub forty seven swim. But this guy, if Cole Chalmers wins at the Paris Olympics and gets on the lane ropes and hit us with a big double, a big ch- double chest fist bump, um, then I think he'll go down as the greatest sprinter of all time. No, no man has won two Olympic golds in the hundred meter freestyle, which shows you how hard it is to do. Um, and this is this is his Tom the Shine right. He's probably, I think he said he's going to call it quits after Paris. That'll be three Olympics, um, three wonderful campaigns, and in the longevity. Uh, with a freestyler, their shoulders can go any time with the force they're generating. Uh, abdomens can go, anything can go because they push their body to the limits when they're swimming that fast in the water. Uh, but this guy is a special, special athlete. Uh, and um, first, probably in the swimming circles, he gets the credence he deserves. Uh, but I don't think he's fully appreciated. And I think if he wins a gold or, or del- even delivers a relay gold, um, uh, which I think if he could potentially do both, and that would really be unbelievable. But um, that's my bold prediction for 2024. Kyle Chalmers to get on the lane rope in Paris with Poulier Smith watching at a nearby bar, hitting a big wazoo right in front of all, right in front of all the French smoking out their window. So that's uh, that's my bold prediction. I'm going to leave it there because I think that deserves its attention on its own, and I've been looking forward to jacking that up for next year. I would have loved to have gone to the swimming, but unfortunately the French have priced me out, uh, much like their age pension system, which they seem to be protesting about lifting the age from. Um, seeing Paris is such a wonderful place to live, according to some. <laughs> Not targeting anyone yeah. specifically. After the Rugby World Cup and the Olympics next year, I think we could be done with Paris for a while. I think we could <laughs> you know, them in the bloody back cupboard for a bit. Before we go, Tom, you didn't want to mention anything to do with the recent Tigers news? Oh, we can we can touch on it. The, the, uh, for those who don't know, the, uh, the board has been spilled. Uh, and the CEO, long-time CEO, Justin Pascoe, has resigned from his position alongside Chairman Lee Hadjipantelis and Shane Richardson, former South Sydney CEO, has come in uh, as interim CEO and Barry O'Farrell as interim chairman. Uh, this is after the Holman Barnes Group, which is the majority owner rep- representing West Ashfield in the club, agreed to accept all recommendations in importance of the club's governance. So once they agreed, it was going to be dominoes. It didn't matter what individuals want it or not um i think it's a good thing i think it's a good chance for a reset um i think shane richardson is a shrewd operator obviously turned south sydney around and that was a much bigger challenge um than turning west around i know people think oh maybe not but he actually said that today in a press conference at south you know kicked out of the competition had a much smaller junior base had a much smaller membership membership base they weren't trying out of a 70 million dollar center of excellence down there at mighty concord oval that the West Tigers have access to and have a wonderful young coach in Benji Marshall. Um, so there's a chance to get that there. I think, you know, again, there's no short-term solution. Investing in the juniors, not trying to find a short-term fix. I saw they withdrew their offer to Adam Fanua Blake, which I am very happy about because I think we have got good young forwards um, and, you know, we do have some experience there with Clemmer, Papali'i and Bateman. Um, and in terms of young halves, you know, there's plenty of good young halves coming through. Obviously, there's an offer on the table there for Lua. I mean, it's very, you know, it would be, it would be nice to get him because he is he is a class player, he's a three time Premiership winner. So we'll see how we go there. Uh, his idol was Benji growing up, so obviously Benji would try and have some pulling power there. But I, I'm okay with it. Uh, you know, I you know, we live in a 24 hour news cycle these days, so not many things shock me, and this didn't particularly shock me because I follow it. Unlike you know, people thought, oh, what's happening to the Tigers? What's happening to the Tigers, mate? I'm, I'm, I bleed black, white, and, and, and gold, mate. I, I follow this thing left, right, and center. So 
um, I think it's a good thing, good chance for reset, and uh, yeah, let's uh, let's roll into uh, 2024 with some uh, eyes up footy. Oh yeah, baby. Yeah, good. Uh, I agree. I think it's a good thing for reset. Um, yeah, it's been a Sage Rogers is always for big boys over there. So uh, we're running close to time, so we, we might call it there. Thanks, Joseph, again for a wonderful year. I know we've had our ups and downs. Not uh, you know, a relationship as strong as ever, but uh, personal challenges here and there. But uh, as I said earlier, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Give me some Eric Thomas right now because I'm about to run through a brick wall. Um, <laughs> the um, Thanks so much for all our hard-earned listeners. It's a continually, increasingly shrinking base. <laughs> I jest, maybe I don't. Um, but um, thanks for everyone who listened um, and enjoy and have a wonderful Christmas season um, and enjoy your New Year's test, mate, because guess what? When Sydney's New Year test rolls around, I know there's a bit weather, always a bit of wet weather, but hey, there's nothing better than being in a linen shirt and your RMs and the uh, SCG members pretending you're of a social class that you're not. Uh, so um, let's roll through with that and, uh, yeah, have a wonderful Christmas and uh, thanks to everyone who listened. Ta-ta. Thanks for having me. Have a good one.